Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming straight from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. Today's podcast is, as Troy says, oh, hello, Troy. Hi. How you doing? I'm fantastic. Today's podcast is, as Troy says, is about the awesome ladies of the Federated Press. And we learned about these awesome ladies when we sat down with Victoria Grieve. Professor Grieve is an associate professor of history, teaching courses in modern U.S. history and visual culture at Utah State University. And she's currently working on a book that revolves around five women journalists who wrote for the Federated Press from the 1930s to the 1950s. So not only is she writing a history of these women and what the Federated Press was, um, but she's also digging into how networks of support were created with people from across the country who shared uh, similar interests and in, in, in the social justice movements during this, this century. So folks, we're going to learn a bit about the Federated Press, which was kind of an associated press for labor, um, but mostly about the very diverse, eclectic group of women. Now, these are not the sob sister type uh, journalists uh, of the earliest 20th century. These are the Torchy, Torchy Blaines. Troy, who's Torchy Blaine? Uh, character in the front page. Very nice. They worked hard. They sometimes drank very hard. Um, so they were this, like, an amazing group of women that I'm really excited about what Professor Grieve will be putting out in her book. Um, there are some excellent stories. Is a huge peel the onion type of thing. And you know what? Troy, I think we're going to see a Netflix special out of this. Hi, Victoria. Hi. Hi. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thanks nice for to be here. thanks for doing this. Yes, I appreciate it. Um, all right. So first, how did you get started working on this project? Uh, what drew you into the leftist journalism type aspect? Um, this project, like lots of other academic projects, comes from one before it. So I started working on this. Um, after I started working on my dissertation, I was in Oregon. I was living in Portland, and I was working in the Oregon Historical Society, um, looking at an artist paper. Her name's Martina Gangle Curl, and she turned out to be really good friends with Julia Rutia, who's one of the journalists that I'm looking at. And um, Rutia is um, quite a character, and it's hard not to get drawn in to her. And so her accounts of um, staging one-woman sit-ins and her activism and her involvement in the labor world really just kind of drew me in. Cool. cool. Yeah. Um, all right. We'll talk to you about a little bit more about it. I want to know more about the Federated Press, though. Okay. I know a little bit about it. And, I, of course, our listeners probably don't know much about it. So why don't you give us a quick overview of what the Federated Press was? Uh, the Federated Press was born at a moment of intense um, leftist and labor activism. It was founded in 1919 by a group of editors from socialist and labor, um, farmer parties, all of this melange of political activism sort of came together because these editors felt they couldn't really get fair play in the mainstream press, um, that workers' issues were either ignored or they were maligned or both sides of the story were not told. 
So this group of editors uh, launched the service in 1919. I was just in the archives yesterday kind of looking at some of the conversations about how are we going to do this, how is it going to work, who's going to pay for it. Um, and so as they worked out these sorts of issues, by 1920, it was, um, well, first it was a weekly and then it was a daily service. And uh, they would compile news and they determined that they would have um, regional offices that would contribute news to a daily sheet that was mailed out to all of these newspapers um, so that they could share news across the labor movement, they could share national political news, and they had a really strong international bent in the first few years, which I think kind of fades away uh, over the decades. Um, so that's how it started, uh, very much a, a labor newspaper. Um, Carl Hessler was originally a writer, and he became the managing editor uh, for 30 years, 34 years. He, and he really left his mark on it. I'm getting more of a sense of that now in the archives. He, um, his notes to the staff, his memos, his policies of um, sort of fairness and impartiality, he thought that was a way to keep the Federated Press moving forward and alive by not taking sides, being a broad sort of labor paper. Um, and so he didn't take sides. Um, in the 1930s, when the AFL and CIO were warring uh, for union members, he refused to take sides in that battle. Um, he kind of maintained this policy of neutrality. And sometimes that got him into trouble. Um, he was left open to charges of red baiting, and there are lots of um, letters in the 1940s, 47, 48, 49, defending the Federated Press um, because critics would say, oh, well, the Daily Worker gets your, your service. And he says, well, yes, yeah, so does the AP, so does the New York Times. So there was uh, charges of red baiting throughout the 1940s, um, but there were some critics on the left, too, one of whom is, is um, one of the journalists I'm talking about. Her name is Virginia Gardner, and she was a communist. She wrote briefly for the FP in, in Washington, D.C., and um, she butted heads with Hessler all the time over his part policy of neutrality and, and not taking sides in various labor battles. It's kind of hard to stay neutral, especially with so many battles going on, not only within the union movement, not only with the communist movement, but also with the politics, Absolutely. especially during the Depression. So yeah. that must have been a fine line. It was a fine line. That the, the example that pops to mind is, is the Wallace campaign in 1948. Um, the liberals, of course, were Trumanites, right? And the, the more lefties were uh, Wallace supporters. And when Truman won, um, a lot of his, a lot of the subscribers to the Federated Press canceled their subscriptions. So the kind of the writing was on the wall. That, in addition to red baiting, was a serious problem after 1948. Was it also an issue? All right, uh, Ruther becomes president of the UAW 46, yeah. and I'm sure. He had issues with the Federated Press. He did, absolutely. The The more conservative unions, um, the AFL launches their own press service uh, in 1949. And from that point on, um, they are trying to attract subscribers to their service. It's far more conservative than the Federated Press. It doesn't necessarily have a policy of neutrality with the news. Um, and, and that certainly contributes as well to the demise of the Federated Press in 1956. Mm. So you are writing about the, the amazing women. Yeah. Okay, so I know this is going to be a long answer, but you got to tell us who you're, who you're writing about, <laughs> who you're researching. Okay. Um, I'm kind of in love with these women. Of I'll course. Admitted yeah. from the first, because they're so 
brave and they're really amazing people. Um, so I'll tell you about four of them. The first is uh, Julia Rutia. She um, was in the lumber camps and in the um, lumber battles of the Pacific Northwest in the late 1930s. She was an activist for 50 years. Um, Sandy Palaszczuk wrote a great biography, uh, oral history uh, biography with Rutia before her death. And when she wrote for the Federated Press, she was known as Kathleen Cronin. So just as an aside, one of the difficulties of doing this research is that there were a lot of aliases. So I'm like, wait a minute, is she her? Like Betty Friedan, who wrote for the FP under Betty Goldstein, she kind of forgot to talk about that later. Daniel Horowitz wrote um, a great book about her experiences with the Federated Press. So anyway, Rutia, um, she writes for the FP from 1942 until its demise in 1956. Uh, she was involved in all sorts of social movements, and one of my favorite stories of hers, when she's 75 years old, she, um, you know, comes from an anti-Vietnam war um, protest and um, protests against storing chemical weapons in Oregon, and she and her friend stage a one-woman protest. They sit in at PGE, uh, Portland General Electric, because they're protesting rate hikes against <laughs> um, the elderly, basically, people on a fixed income. And she forced the issue. She would not get up. She was dragged out by the police or news cameras, and she loved it. She just loved it. So she definitely had a sense of theater and um, kind of got the politics by that age. So she's great, and she's funny, and um, she's just really an interesting woman. Now, Jessie Lloyd, on the other hand, is the daughter of millionaires. Uh, Lola Maverick is her mother. She was one of the founders of the WILPF. She was the Henry Ford Peace Ship in 1915. Mm -hmm. She was a pacifist. Her father was uh, William Bross, who was the heir to the Chicago Tribune fortune. Um, and she's well-educated. She went to Smith College. She's a lifelong pacifist. Um, but she chooses to marry Harvey O'Connor, who is a muckraking journalist. He works for the labor and leftist press his whole life. Uh, he writes books criticizing Standard Oil and, and all the rest. Um, so she got her start with the Federated Press um, covering textile strikes in Kentucky, which was sketchy and scary mm -hmm. in the late 1930s. Those labor wars were absolutely dangerous. And she took the place of a man um, because Harvey was convinced that they wouldn't go after a woman. Uh, uh, but when she checked into her hotel, when she got down um, to where she was going to be, she got a threatening note her first night uh, in the South saying, yeah, you're not welcome here. Right. You might want to leave. Um, so she also, she and Harvey are lifelong activists. They support, financially support the Federated Press when things start to get pretty difficult in the 1940s. Um, Virginia Gardner uh, is another journalist that I'm looking at, and she is a college-educated journalist, one of the only um, ones that I'm looking at. Um, actually, she was also the only member of the Communist Party um, out open member of the Communist Party. Um, she got her start on the women's pages on small town Oklahoma newspapers and mm -hmm. gradually kind of worked her way up. She worked for the Chicago Tribune. She got fired from the Chicago Tribune. She had a famous relationship with Hearst, um, a, a sparring relationship, right. I should qualify. Um, and she was fired for leftist political activity and creating sort of a workers' uh, um, newsletter at the Chicago Tribune. So she was fired from there in 1939. 
Um, and she made, she was married, but divorced. Uh, she had a young son. She worked for the Daily Worker. She worked for the People's World. She worked for the Federated Press. Um, so she made her, her living as a journalist. And as she got fired or blacklisted <laughs> or all these other sorts of things, she um, peeled hot dogs in hot dog factories. That was kind of her really? fallback job, which sounded awful. Yeah. Yeah. She did me the favor of um, creating a drafter for autobiography, which is at um, New York University. So I hear a lot of these sorts of other details, which is really interesting because sometimes we only get the political activities and the political records of a lot of these activists, but her um, drafted autobiography is really sort of a personal oh, that's great. account. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Nice find in the archive. Very great find. Yeah, yeah. that's excellent. Yeah. Um, and last but not least is Miriam Culkin, who um, went to Hunter College in New York. She um, worked as the national news editor for the FP from um, 1943 until its demise. And like some of these other activists, after the Federated Press ended in 1956, she kind of went by a different name. Um, she became, well, she was Mim Kelber. She became Miriam Culkin. Or other way around, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. um, and she went on to um, be a founder of Women's Strike for Peace. She worked for um, Congresswoman Bella Abzug for years um, and kind of made a name for herself as a political activist up until her death in 2004. She got really involved in feminist and environmental causes. So a diverse, interesting, diverse. fascinating group of women who had their hands in basically every social movement of the mid to late 20th century. All right, I have to admit, though, when I first read that you were coming here and what your research was, first thing I thought about was the movie Front Page. Right. And um, <laughs> Torchy Blaine. Right. So who, was there any truth in these fictional characters, in these these women that you're writing about? Sort of. I don't think that these reporters and journalists weren't the sob sister Right. Sort of reporters. Right. right. They didn't go for the emotional angle. Virginia Gardner was one of the early feminists who refused to take any sort of special anything because she was a woman. She was going to go her own way. She was going to do it the way the men did it. And that's how it was going to be. And she was certainly because she made her living as a working journalist. She um, kind of bore the brunt of a lot of, of those things. So she was kind of hard boiled. Um, she had her, um, you know, in the 1920s, she was working for small town newspapers, but she'd smoke and drink with her colleagues just the way they did, because she kind of realized that that's where a lot of the news, sort of the discussions, the after work stuff, that's what women had been excluded from, right? And so right. she was going to be right there. Um, so Virginia Gardner, to me, is the most, the most like that sort of hard-boiled reporter. Right. Um, who who will you know play the game? I have a right, quick question though. Another, not probably a quick. Let me something. <laughs> um, what kind of writing do they bring to the Federated Press? Meaning, their view of the world was different from the men's view of the world. Uh, you mentioned um, I forget which one had had a child. Um, so and she was working. So I'm sure they were talking about writing about daycare issues, rent control, all the kind of things that usually women were more concerned about than right. men were. Right. Were they writing that in the Federated Press? Um, to some extent, I find more of that. There's another group of journalists who work for the people's world. 
um, in San Francisco. And I hear more of that in the post-World War II era from, from them. Um, Virginia Gardner, um, Jessie Lloyd. Jessie Lloyd, actually, I'll, I'll use her as an example. She certainly, when she covers the textile strikes, talks about the effects of these long hours, dangerous conditions on mothers and children. Mm. She tells stories of mothers locking their children in the house to go work a night shift um, and because they have no one else to care for them. Um, she talks about malnutrition and all sorts of problems like that for women and children in the textile industry. So she certainly talks explicitly about those sorts of things. Um, some of the other writers, um, not as much. Julia Rutia is very interested in racism, for example, mm -hmm. and it seems like a lot of her stories, she wrote about the Vanport flood, for example, in 1948 and lost her civil service job as a result of that. Um, but she's interested in how African-Americans were sort of ghettoized in this cardboard wartime housing that was wiped away in minutes in a massive flood. Um, so she tends to focus on those sorts of issues. And as, I, and as I just said, Virginia Gardner sort of explicitly pushed back against that, right? Right. Um, she was told to, um, when she worked for the Daily Worker, they wanted her to be their women's reporter. And she said, well, I presume men and women read this newspaper, right? So she actively sort of pushed back against the fact that she would only be writing stories of interest to women. Right. Right. Interesting. So that sense of, and I'm really interested in that sense of working class feminism and journalism and how those two inter, interrelate. And if there is a movement among these journalists to cover those sorts of issues or to kind of try to be gender neutral in the mm -hmm. way they approach their work. And I see a little bit, a little bit of both. Okay. About that. What are you trying to get the readers to get away from what you're writing. I mean, your work, there's a lot of onion peeling going on here. There know? is. There are lots of different ways I could look at this. And right now, the two main ways that I'm working on this, one of which is kind of how I came to the project in the first place. So these working journalists, and um, they are working and they are active, and um, working class feminism is reaching its peak in this 1920s to 1960 time period, which, um, you know, there's a larger debate among feminist historians, not so much anymore, but the, the idea of first wave and second wave feminism, um, lots of working class feminists would say, well, of course, there was feminism in between that, that has been ignored. So part of this is filling in that gap um, in working class feminist studies with the, the relationship of these journalists and the labor press and working class feminism and how that relationship worked and, and how these women participated in that movement as well. Um, so there's that. And the other is, as I've mentioned, there are so many connections between um, Jesse Lloyd O'Connor and pacifism, Julia Rutia and racism, Miriam Culkin and environmentalism and, and feminism. So I'm also interested in how networks of leftists and liberals and communists. You know, there was a time when those labels were transcended and it didn't matter and all these people worked together for progressive causes and that splinters, of course, later. But I'm really interested in how journalism and writing participates in creating this network of people who then work for larger things. And here's another example. So Harvey and Jesse O'Connor 
um, are writers for the Federated Press. The Federated Press is the news service that basically brings out the story of Carl and Ann Braden who sold their house to an African-American couple, which was against the law, but they did so to bring the case to court. Um, they were, of course, threatened, and their house was firebombed. And so Jesse and Harvey bring them to New York, and they go on a um, lecture circuit to tell people what is going on um, in the South and, and how these um, problems are being dealt with in the South. And it creates it broadens the movement, right? It brings other people in, it brings in unions, it brings in these other people who might not have been. So I'm interested in the Federated Press as sort of a network and how it links all of these disparate people into a community. Uh, you mentioned red baiting a lot. Was it harder on these women, and especially when they try to have a career after being exposed for whoever they were right. or being exposed for working for the Federated Press, that was probably labeled as, you know, read sure um because you mentioned betty friedan before and when i read that book that you mentioned um she, it seemed like she was hiding it in a way to further her career as uh bringing the feminine mystique alive because if she exposed that she was working for the press right it would taint be, the fed the feminist movement it would taint it, it wasn't yeah. already <laughs> uh, yeah right. problematic enough but <laughs> so did you see that do you have you seen that with the, these women after the federated press for and what their, their, their future work, their future uh, activism, so to speak? Um, no, actually. I don't think any of them sort of recanted or backpedaled nice. at okay. all. Um, Julia Rutia continued writing. She worked for the ILWU, ILW, um, uh, yeah. thank you, um, for years. She wrote for the Dispatcher. She continued to write. Uh, she continued to protest. She continued to be an activist after she was called in front of HUAC. Um, in some ways, I wonder, and I haven't quite worked this out yet, if marriage shielded these women in some way. They were not necessarily the primary breadwinners. Virginia Gardner accepted, of course, um, for their families. Right. So I don't know. There were also writers for the leftist press, which continued. And so they could find jobs as writers. Um, so in some ways, that didn't go away. They would have that... Um, as an option to earn a living. So Rutia did not backpedal. Jesse and Harvey, they um, had their own personal financial security mm -hmm. that really couldn't necessarily be touched. They did have their passports revoked for a time. Um, they had, you know, FBI guys knocking on their door. Uh, Harvey was called before HUAC. Jesse was not. Um, so their lives were certainly impacted. I think Virginia, Virginia Gardner, because she was so openly a member of the Communist Party, she probably had the worst run-in with, with red baiting, of course. She, um, when she lived in California, they offered uh, for her to go underground, but she had a son, so she said no. So instead, she had to make arrangements if she would be, you know, plucked away and, right. and whatnot, what would happen to her son. So she made arrangements for that. Um, she lost jobs. She dealt with a lot of sort of red baiting in ways that maybe Whose husband had didn't. to go underground? Uh, one of the women, uh, was that O'Connor? No, none of the women whose um, husbands I'm um, dealing okay. with, but I'm thinking of one of the editors of People's World on the West Coast. Right. Um, as a woman working in the male newspaper world, obviously, as you're talking about, is like, did they face 
sexual discrimination, any kind of the discrimination that you would think would not be in the leftist world, you know? Right. Um, women who worked for the Federated Press, as far as I can tell so far, made the same amount of money as their male peers. Um, Hessler was pretty um, strict about that sort of thing. It was a family, everybody made the same amount of money. Stringers like Julia Rutia, she didn't work on salary, but she was paid $25 um, for her contributions. Um, working for the communist press, um, I think Virginia Gardner experienced more of that, perhaps. Um, she was fired from an early paper for smoking cigarettes and drinking. So clearly her personal life was the purview of her mail. Virginia's wild, um, man. <laughs> she was a wild lady, for sure. Um, so she was fired for that. Uh, she was fired for leftist activity from the Chicago Tribune, which is obviously not um, surprising, I suppose. So when Virginia Gardner was, was stationed in D.C., the male reporter whose place she took, who had been drafted, she would, um, he would go to the National Press Club to get the news. But women were excluded from the National Press Club. They were only allowed in the National Press Club cafeteria if they were invited by a male member to have a meal there. So getting the news for Gardner was far more labor intensive than it would have been for a male colleague. Um, and she was also a single mother at the time, searching for reliable childcare during World War II uh, in Washington, D.C., when there weren't lots of daycares. Um, so she had that experience. And she also found out working for the communist press later that the assumption, the working assumption, was that she was not the primary breadwinner for her family, um, that she was receiving child support, which she was not. And so she found out kind of after the fact that she had been underpaid for many years, right? Male employees were paid a certain amount of money if they had one child, a little more if they had two, a little more if they had three. She was paid on the basis of being a single worker, even though she was a divorced woman with a child, right? right? Um, but on the Federated Press, as far as I can tell, um, except for the experience of them not really going to bat for her in terms of getting access uh, in Washington, D.C. to the press club. I feel like the, the pay, at least, was standard. Okay. But I'm sure after World War II, when the men were returning, there was the issues of, okay, they're coming back, you can leave now. Absolutely. Yeah. The number of women, if you go back and look at the labor press and the federated press and People's World, the sheer number of women, they're on, they fill the front pages of some issues. There are so many female reporters during these years you know, you don't think of Rosie the Riveter with a pen in her hand, but certainly <laughs> female reporters had a, had the door open wider for, for during World War II. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you're in an archive. We always have to ask this question of our researchers. Right. You've only been here, <laughs> what, a one full day? Correct. All right. What collections are you looking at? Have you found anything cool yet? And what other archives have you looked in? And just so anybody else interested, where would they go? You know? Right. So I'm here to look at Carl Hessler's paper, who is the managing editor for 30-odd years. Um, during my first day of research, I was looking at correspondence. Uh, he's in Detroit. He's talking to Miriam Colkin, who's in um, New York City, um, about the approach of the news, about red baiting. So a lot of these sort of broader issues that I'm interested in are, are touched on so far. Um, as for other archives, I've been to several now. Julia Rutia's papers are at the Oregon Historical Society. Jesse Lloyd O'Connor's papers are at Smith College. 
Um, Mim Kelber's papers are at Hunter College, where I'll be next week. Uh, and Virginia Gardner's papers are at New York University. So I've been to all of these archives. And at NYU, when I was in Virginia Gardner's paper, not only did she write her autobiography for me, which was great, but I found this correspondence between her and Julia Rutia from 1970, 1971. Um, these sort of aging radicals, I guess, right, which right. is hilarious because their letters back and forth. Virginia Gardner was writing a book about Louise Bryant, who was a communist activist. She lived in Portland early in the 20th century, and she hired Rutia to do research for her for this book because she couldn't travel to and from Portland, Oregon to New York all the time. And so over time, their correspondence sort of broadens into complaints about achy knees and <laughs> grandchildren gone awry and all of these very personal, familiar sorts of stories, which are wonderful to hear. And then you have Rutia mixing in these marches and these protests and these sit-ins and these Angela Davis rallies. And it's just a really fascinating way to that I don't think, as I said before, that we always get to hear about, about right. these leftists from the 30s and the 40s, um, that this sort of rounded picture of their lives as opposed to just their political activism. So yes, there have been some great moments, and I'm uncovering this idea of this network that I've been thinking of. These women knew one another. They right. worked together. Um, Miriam Culkin and Julia Rutia, you know, Culkin edited Rutia's writing from the West Coast. So they had working relationships, and as I read more deeply, I'm kind of uncovering this, this sort of broader social network that I'm really interested in. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been Appreciate fun. it. Thank Excellent. you. Okay, that was an interview with uh, Victoria Grieve. Uh, she was a Fishman grantee awardee uh, from 2019, a recent one. She came in um, on a $1,000 support travel to Ruther Library uh, to access our labor collections. It's in honor of uh, Sam Fishman. He was a former UAW and Michigan AFL-CIO leader. I believe that the applications will be going up this fall, so pay attention to that, folks. Say goodbye, Troy. <laughs> Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistants from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. No, I was just adjusting. Is that good sound? Probably. Probably. I don't know. <laughs> All right. No, that's great. <laughs> Whatever. I'll figure it out later. I'll make you sound even worse. I'll just edit it while drinking hard like Torchy Blaine. <laughs>
awesome. I I'd watch so. it. I know. I don't have Netflix, but I'd borrow someone's password. Fine. Hulu? I'd borrow that password, too, I guess. All right. <laughs>